Well, good morning, joiners. It's good to see you this morning. My wife and I both want to thank uh, all of you for all your expressions of well wishes as I turn into a new decade. And I just want you to know that 70 is the new 40. <laughs> all right, as we move forward here. And uh, so um, we had a great time. Thank you for all the cards and thank you for those that came to the open house and just grateful for everything. And those of you that expressed uh, their thankfulness, I'm grateful for you. So uh, we want to get back into the book of Ruth this morning. So if you have your Bible, please take it. And uh, we're coming right down to the very end of this book. And this is an important climax that we're coming to. This is a critical book throughout the Old Testament in terms of the history of redemption. And we've entitled this message, Boaz Marries Ruth. Very simple title here in Ruth chapter 4, verses 9 through 15. And as we begin, I want you to take your Bible and follow along with me as I read this particular portion. Ruth chapter 4, verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have acquired all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malone from the hand of Naomi. And also I've acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malone, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the one who had died on behalf of his inheritance so that the name of the one who died will not be cut off from his brothers or from the gate of his birthplace, you are witnesses today. And all the people who are in the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May Yahweh grant the woman who is coming into your home to be like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And so you shall achieve excellence in Ephrata and shall proclaim your name in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the seed which Yahweh will grant you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and Yahweh granted her conception, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman, women said to Naomi, Blessed is Yahweh, who has not left you without a kinsman redeemer today, and may his name be proclaimed in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of your soul and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Now, this has been the part of the story of Ruth that many of you have been waiting for for a long time, the marriage of Boaz and Ruth. And I think it's very significant that God views marriage and wedding ceremonies in Scripture so highly. Scripture even uses the joy of a wedding to describe salvation. In Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 10, God says... um, Or Isaiah says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness 
as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with pearls or jewels. In fact, you also remember in John chapter 2, in fact, I'm going to have you go over to John chapter 2 just for a moment. You remember this because this is the very first miracle that Jesus performs, and he performs it at a wedding celebration. John chapter 2, verse 1, and on the third day there was a wedding in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water jars set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing two or three measures each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water jars with, or fill the water jars with water so that they are filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And now when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter said to the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the inferior wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this in Canaan of Galilee as the beginning of his signs and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So there, it was there at the wedding where the first earthly miracle of Jesus took place, the wedding there in Canaan of Galilee. Jesus has a high view of the importance of wedding and the celebrations of weddings and the joy that surrounds wedding, Jesus attended weddings. I remember when I was a boy, one of the main reasons I attended weddings was not for the ceremony, it was for the cake. <laughs> that was the main reason. But in this particular case, um, Jesus is honoring the wedding. Sometime later in the ministry of Jesus Christ, he told the story of the parable of the ten virgins awaiting the bridegroom in Matthew 25 as a description of the kingdom of heaven. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like these ten virgins. And then, take your Bible, because we've studied through the book of Revelation here in Joint Heirs, but go back to Revelation chapter 19, and you can remember, if you were a part of that study, Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, which is a description of what is often referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. It says, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. So God pictures here uh, the union of the lamb and the bride together. So marriage ceremonies that we celebrate today are a vague shadow of a much greater cosmic wedding in heaven. 
If you're a believer, you will be a part of the bride at this ceremony in Revelation 19. This is the mother of all wedding ceremonies. And you will play a part of that in the future. Now, why are weddings so important? Let me answer that question several ways. Why are weddings so important? Because first and foremost, from a biblical perspective, they reflect a greater eternal union of Christ and his church. What we observe as wedding ceremonies here on earth are only a vague shadow of something that's much greater later on. Why are wedding ceremonies so important? Because they mark a new beginning and the joyful blessings of God in the future. And by the way, that's exactly what the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be. Why are they so important? Because they fulfill a created need for closeness, companionship, unity, and oneness that God designed for a man and a woman. Why are they so important? Because they promise purity and loyalty, guarding against exploitation. They are important because the union of a man and a woman often provides the opportunity of parenting and passing the gospel on to future generations. They are important because it is an expression of the unilateral love that reflects Christ's redemptive love for his people. So the wedding of Boaz and Ruth embraces all of that and much more. So today I want to focus on on three areas here. The first one is in verses 9 and 10. That's the witnesses. Verses 9 and 10, the witnesses. The second one is in verses 11 and 12. That's the wishes. And the third one in verses 13 through 15, that's the wedding. Those three things are what we want to take a look at today. So let's take a look at the witnesses here in verses 9 and 10. It's very clear from verse 9 that Boaz does not waste any time in achieving the right of redemption. He's focused on two things, Elimelech's property and Ruth's hand in marriage. Why Ruth? Because she is the only widow who can continue the family line by giving birth to a child. Given the refusal of the other closer relative who could have redeemed them but turned it down once he learned that he would have to marry a Moabite woman like Ruth, we saw that back in verses 5 and 6. I'm sure that there were other witnesses who thought that Boaz was making this huge mistake Why would he be interested in marrying an enemy of Israel? But Boaz's righteous heart is best seen at this particular point. Later on, Solomon says in Proverbs 25, 21, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to drink. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. This is exactly the way in which Boaz had treated Ruth and Naomi earlier in chapter 2. Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Boaz becomes a kinsman redeemer to Naomi and Ruth because of his willingness to embrace what was considered to be unlovable among the Israelites of his time. In verse 9, Boaz calls the elders of Israel together along with nearby people there in the city gate to be public witnesses verifying his commitment to 
formally acquire the land of Elimelech and the hand of Ruth. He's not ashamed at all in making this public declaration. He proudly and publicly states his intentions with everybody watching and listening. So the first thing he focuses in on in verse 9 is they are a witness to the redemption of real estate. This is Elimelech's real estate. So they witness his desire to redeem the real estate of Elimelech from Naomi in order to preserve it in the family. And you may understand the importance of owning a piece of land. It's something that you can call your own, do whatever you want with. But the average ancient Jew owning a piece of the promised land had infinitely more significance. Infinitely more significance. To have a part in the promised land was a tangible evidence of God's fulfilled promises. To lose property or to become somehow removed from the promised land was a sign of God's displeasure as well as his judgment upon them. Family real estate was the most treasured possession on earth in those days for those ancient Israelites. So the elders and the people witness that Boaz was careful to follow the Torah's instruction as a kinsman redeemer in acquiring Elimelech's land. Now, in order to help you to see this, I want you to grab your Bible and go over to Leviticus chapter 25. We haven't talked a lot about this. We've made reference to it in the past, but we want to go back to Leviticus chapter 25. And what's interesting in those days, beginning in verses 25 through 28, what's very interesting in those days is that people did not have personal copies of the Bible. Anything that they knew about the Torah, they had to learn by going to the synagogue and listening carefully to what the Torah had to say. So the retention that Boaz had from carefully going to the synagogue and then going back home, remembering what the Torah says, and then living it out was remarkable. We're, in a sense, lazy today because we have full copies of the Bible. We can look at them. We even have multiple electronic copies of the Bible. We can access the Bible from any direction at any particular time. We can do that. They didn't have that opportunity in those days. And yet, at this particular point, Boaz shows an amazing knowledge of Scripture and living it out, practicing it. Look at Leviticus 25, verse 25. The Torah says this. It says, If a brother of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell his possession of land, then his nearest kinsman redeemer is to come and redeem what his brother has sold. Or, in the case of a man who has a kinsman redeemer but recovers his means and finds sufficient payment for its redemption, then he shall calculate the years since his sale and return the balance to the man to whom it was sold and so return his possession of the land. But if he has not found sufficient means to return it to himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchaser until the year of Jubilee. Now, what that means at this point is the guy who purchased that land from the guy who originally owned the land cannot sell it to anybody else. He's not allowed to do that according to the law. But in the year of Jubilee, it shall, which is every 50 years, it shall revert, 
that they may return to the possession of the land. So it's going to revert to the family. Even after the guy has died, it reverts back to his family as an inheritance in the land of Jubilee. Well, it's amazing how clearly uh, Boaz understands this. Keeping the land within the family was critical for the present and future welfare of Elimelech's family. God made it clear to the Jews that he wanted their land to be remain with them as a blessing. It was their earthly inheritance, and it was not something to be treated with some kind of cavalier attitude. Moses is commanded by Yahweh, but charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go across at the head of the people. He will give them an inheritance and inheritance the land which you will see. That's Deuteronomy 3.28. Then later on in Numbers 34 and verse 2, he says, command the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, even the land of Canaan according to its borders. And then fast forward all the way to the New Testament. So take your Bible again. We're going to wear out your Bibles today and go to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 13. And we're interested in verse 15. It says, um, in verse 15, this is the the Apostle Paul speaking... um, the gathering there at Pisidian Antioch on the Sabbath day at the synagogue there. And it says, and after reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to him saying, brothers, um, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and lifted up the people during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for a period of about 40 years, he put put up with them in the wilderness. And when he destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. Wow. When you get upset at God not working, you've got to understand that you're a God... You have a God that you serve that works in not just weeks or months, but decades, centuries, millennia. That's that's the way God works. 450 years. Later in the redemptive history, we learn that the promised land, now get this, was only a shadow or a foretaste of, of a greater heavenly inheritance for his saints. Go over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Notice how Peter refers to this, and he uses the same Greek terminology as is used by the Apostle Paul. 
First Peter chapter one, verse three, it says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you begin to see that what's going on here in terms of protecting the land as their inheritance becomes a shadow of a much greater reality of a spiritual heavenly inheritance that's going to come much later. This becomes key and this plays into the closeness that these ancient Jews had to their land. And even to this day, you understand, even many Jews who are atheistic are tied to the land of Israel. They're tied to the land. So you can see this. Colossians chapter 3, verses 24, 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, um, do you work heartily as for the Lord? rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So you've got to understand that by doing everything they could do in order to maintain the land given to them as a divine inheritance, they were acknowledging their full faith and trust in Yahweh. It was an act of faithful stewardship. By purchasing from Naomi the land, he was acting as an intermediate caretaker on behalf of her family. To him, it did not matter whether he personally profited from it or not. Didn't matter. The second thing here that I want you to see is that the elders and the people witnessed that Boaz was acting lovingly towards Naomi by purchasing Elimelech's land. Legally, Boaz could have chosen to marry Ruth Ignore Naomi's property. He still would have been in keeping with the law. He could have married the young maiden, run off with her without helping Naomi, but he doesn't do that. He chooses to redeem both of them. First, because he was a man of integrity and could not allow Naomi to continue to suffer. But second, it was important to keep the land and the family. But third, he also understood Ruth's love for her mother-in-law. Ruth had already sacrificed so much in helping and loving Naomi, Boaz acknowledged that. So he needed to honor all the efforts already that Ruth has made with Naomi in terms of caring for her and loving her. So that's important. We see this back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where Boaz, you see, at this particular point, acknowledges to Ruth that he sees something very, very special in her, in her care for her mother-in-law. In fact, he says to her back in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Boaz replied to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you forsook your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May Yahweh fully repay your work and may your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Little did he know at that particular time that he was going to be a major part of that protection of her and providing for her. So not only does Boaz redeem Elimelech's real estate, he also 
takes the most risky step in becoming Ruth's husband. This was a risky step. And they, they witness, of course, these witnesses witness the redemption of Ruth. So what is it that they see? The elders, then, and the people witness that Boaz was careful to follow the Torah's instruction as a kinsman redeeming and acquiring Ruth's hand. Now, this is important as well. And this shows, again, it reflects how well Boaz understood his instructions uh, given by the Torah. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25. And we'll pick up in verse 5. Deuteronomy chapter 25. Now, this has to do now with Ruth. Not the land, but Ruth. Deuteronomy 25 and verse 5. If brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, then the wife of the one who has died shall not be married outside of the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as a wife and perform the duty of a husband, a husband's brother to her. And it will be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of the, his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate, to the elders of the city, and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he stands and says, I do not desire to take her, then... His brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, thus, it is so done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And in Israel, his name will be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. So this continuing the lineage of the family becomes critically important and especially if a woman has a husband that dies before having given birth, then her brother has an obligation to go in, and or his brother, the, the brother that died, his brother has the obligation to go in and marry her and raise up progeny. Wow, that was significant. Now, even though Boaz's situation doesn't neatly fit that, he's speaking... And he's actually going after the intent of the law here. You've got to understand that. He's going after the intent of the law. And that is these widows need to be cared for. And the name of the family needs to be passed on. This is really critical for you to, to see at this particular point. So there was something the other closer relative, Naomi, was will, unwilling to do. He was unwilling to marry Ruth the Moabitess. He wanted to purchase the land, but he did not want a wife, especially if she was a Moabite. He believed that it was going to jeopardize his future inheritance. We saw that back up in chapter 4 and verse 6. So he shamefully backs out of being a kinsman redeemer. Yet Boaz made it clear that the land and Ruth's hand was a package deal. And this man wanted to enlarge his holdings, this other closer relative, but... He did not want the same 
desire, and he had no desire whatsoever to be the husband of a Moabite. The elders then, number two, and the people of the city witnessed that Boaz was acting lovingly by marrying Ruth the Moabitess. We know this because of the very deliberate and public way in which he calls Ruth in verse 10, Ruth the Moabitess. He was not ashamed of that. Specifically, she was the widow of Malone. Everyone knew exactly who he was referring to. You know, someone loves you when they are willing to risk criticism and being ostracized by a large majority of people by being associated with you. My wife has been willing to be associated with me for 45 years. You know somebody loves you when that's the case. So this was an enormous, enormous gamble for Boaz. Only pride would keep you from associating with an outcast or those who are lowly. Boaz knew Ruth to be a woman who loved and served Yahweh. Her family heritage made no difference to him. Her racial heritage made no difference to him. Even though she was considered an outcast among the Jews, he was willing to be her husband. So truly, Boaz was a man of courage, character, integrity, because he loved and served the same God as Ruth. Paul even admonishes the Roman church in Romans 12, 16, be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So when God's grace really has humbled your heart, that is in salvation, when that's happened, you no longer see yourself as any better than anyone else. You're open to be caring and helping to anyone, even though... Others may view your association as being that of, of shameful. Now, as a result of this, the witnesses turn into well-wishers. I believe that they are impressed at this point with Boaz's uninhibited boldness, his kindness, his loving care for Naomi and Ruth. Most of them would have never done what he is doing, but they admire him and hope that it will all work out well. And they express their wishes in verses 11 and 12. Here we see anyone who has gone to a wedding understands that people who there are, who are observing the nuptials are often wishing the couple their very best as they launch their life together. The same is true of our Bethlehem witnesses here. Even though... They may have some doubts in their mind about the wisdom of Boaz marrying a Moabite. They still offer their heartfelt congratulations and wishes for a great future. Now, what I want to do here in verses 11 and 12, I want to start with the second half of verse 11 first. They wish for his prosperity. They wish for his prosperity in verse 11. You can see this when the wishes. And the people say, and, and the people who were there in the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May Yahweh grant the woman who is coming into your home to be like Rachel and Leah. Now, here's the second part of that verse. Both of whom built the house of Israel. And so you shall achieve excellence in Ephrathah and shall proclaim your name in Bethlehem. So 
what they are wishing is they wish and pray that Boaz will become famous. They wish and pray that Boaz will become famous. That's an interesting thing here. Now, the Legacy Standard Bible translates it that they wish him to achieve excellence. Or the New American Standard translates that they wish him to achieve wealth. The Hebrew word that's used there involves the idea of faculty, power, strength, and wealth. Sometimes it's even translated valor. Anyone who has good faculty, power, strength, wealth, or valor is really a description of a person who's famous. There was something special and unique about the character of Boaz that the people recognized was going on in order to make him famous. He he stood head and shoulders above the ordinary men of the city in his character. And it's interesting because their wish becomes true. In fact, he becomes famous after this for many decades to come in Israel. So much so that his great-great-grandson, four generations later, imagine that, Solomon, when building the temple in Jerusalem, part of the structure he named after his great-great-grandfather. I want you to see this. Grab your Bible and go over to 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 17. 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 17. Notice what... Solomon does here. It says, thus, when in building the temple, thus he set up pillars in the front of the temple, one on the right and one on the left, and named the one on the right Jason, which, by the way, was a famous high priest, and the other on the left, Boaz. Boaz. This is his great-great-grandson. You know, I'd be totally amazed if my great-great, four generations later, my great-great-grandsons even know my name. But he was so well-known after this. Um, So he named one pillar after this great high priest, Jachin, and he named the other pillar after Boaz, his great-great-grandfather. So not only that, but they wish and pray that Boaz will become famous in Bethlehem. Notice verse 11 says, they want him to be famous in Epathrida. Epathrida was another name for Bethlehem. Epathrida was an area around Bethlehem that was settled by the Judaite clan at that time who was also a part of the extended family of David and later on Jesus Christ. And we later learn the Messiah was born in the Judean town of Bethlehem. So Boaz's godly character was a reason behind this fame. People knew that he was something special. He was head and shoulders above every other man in Bethlehem at that particular time. People knew that something was unique with him. Now, the first half of verse 11 and the entirety of verse 12 indicate they wish he and Ruth to be fruitful with children. So there's the wish for prosperity, but there's also a wish for progeny. 
And the first thing is they wish and pray Ruth will become a productive matriarch in Boaz's household. Now, that's deliberately worded that way. Why? Because of what they say. If you look at the early part of verse 11, where it says, and the and all the people who were in the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses, may Yahweh grant the woman who is coming into your house to be like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. In other words, in the first half of verse 11, they wish Ruth to be like Rachel and Leah. And then they add the fact, both of whom built the house of Israel. Now, that's a huge statement, very high praise, and and a very high compliment for Boaz and Ruth and their union. Rachel was one of the two wives that married to Jacob. Um, who is Rachel's name first. She was barren, you remember, for many years before she bore children. In a very similar way, Ruth, when married to Malone, had been barren in Moab. So Leah had born... His second wife born Jacob, the, his first four children, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and then she ceased bearing, according to Genesis 29, verses 31 through 35. Rachel then was the more favorite of the two wives of Jacob. Eventually, she bore a son, Joseph. Later, he, she died bearing her second son, Benjamin, to Jacob in Genesis 35, verses 16 through 21. Both Rachel and Leah were considered the matriarchs of all the tribes of Israel. You couldn't hardly get any higher praise as a woman in those days. They were the matriarchs. Um, They were wishing Ruth to be like Rachel and Leah. They were wishing that she would be like him. And that's remarkable and amazing. Ruth has gone from being a detested Moabite to being a delightful matriarch in the eyes of the people of Bethlehem. That's remarkable. Secondly, they wish and pray for numerous and distinctive progeny from this union. That's a highly significant wish and prayer. They had little knowledge of what they were asking Yahweh to do, From this marriage would come Israel's greatest kings, including David and the eternal king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Perez, in verse 12, is mentioned here because of his Leverite connection with Tamar, because of his descendants had settled in Bethlehem, and more importantly, Perez was an ancestor of Boaz. We're going to see that in our next message next week. So... They wish that Boaz and Ruth would become famous in Bethlehem and that Ruth would become a matriarch like Rachel and Leah, and they would have numerous and high, very high distinguished progeny, all of which comes true. When you read the early two chapters of Ruth, you don't expect this at all. This is why we called this whole series Yahweh's Unexpected Redemptive Providence. From the witnessing of the legal proceedings to the well-wishing of the elders and people of Israel, it's natural now. And finally, we have an opportunity to move to the wedding. Now, there is no single place anywhere in Scripture where an entire Jewish wedding ceremony is described in detail. No place. 
However, we can gather from various texts several common Jewish wedding traditions. For example, let's talk about the groom for a moment. The groom would wear a garland or a crown on his head. We alluded to that earlier when I read Isaiah 61 and verse 10, but also we see this in the Song of Solomon that Solomon writes in chapter 3 and verse 11. So he wore a garland on his head. He often was accompanied by several of his friends and relatives. We know that from Judges chapter 4 and verse 11. The groom would come to where the bride was staying in order to acquire the bride, and that's the point at which the ceremony takes place. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. And the groom now, then afterwards, is a part of the celebratory party and the wedding feast. Matthew 25, verse 10. What about the bride? The bride awaits with her friends and relatives for the groom to come to her. The dress of the bride was often lavished with her best dress and jewels. We see this in Psalm 45 and verse 13, Isaiah 61 and verse 10. Her face is covered with a veil that uh, she kept on during the entire celebration and only removed it. And in fact, even afterwards during the celebration, which sometimes could go on for days, she kept her veil on until they retired to their marital chambers. We see this in the Song of Solomon, chapter 4 and verse 1. The veil, by the way, was the reason that Laban was able to trick Jacob into marrying Leah first and not Rachel because she had a veil on and he couldn't tell who she was. Tricked her. Or tricked Jacob. Um, The bride also we understand, wore heavy makeup underneath her veil. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Heavy makeup under the veil. What about the ceremony? The ceremony, the groom would take the bride into an elaborate procession to his home. In Psalm 45, verses 14 and 15, it speaks of this. Some traditions say the bride was carried under an elaborate painted canopy to the groom's residence. Uh, Sometimes the wedding feast would last several days and could occur at the bride or even the groom's home, according to Matthew 22 and verse 2. So there is a lot of detailed tradition that went into the wedding. Now, let's take a look at verse 13 of Ruth 4. Notice what verse 13 says. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, And he went into her, and Yahweh granted her conception and gave birth to a son. Now, that shortens up several months (laughs) in in quite a statement. But um, here we see some of the wedding joys revealed here in verse 13. There are two important things I want you to see here in verse 13. Number one, that Boaz went and acquired his wife. Now, I'm going to make a big deal out of this because I think the text does this. The text makes a very big deal. It's hard to tell us in the English because we just read right through it. But in the Hebrew text, it says he took her. And that word to take her, um, he did it in a very typical Jewish fashion. It's a cow imperfect. It means to take or grasp or seize. It was the groom's responsibility to go and 
take his bride. Uh, the model from the beginning was always, I'm going to notice this, that the man pursue the woman for marriage. The woman was never to pursue the man. If he desired to marry her, then he had to take the initiative. He had to go and acquire the bride. That is very significant, especially when it comes to redemptive history. It sets a historical model of what ultimate redemption truly is. Don't miss that. Boaz was a true kinsman redeemer. Without his actions, none of this would have happened. And in this way, he was like Jesus Christ. The bride of Christ does not pursue the groom. There's nothing in the bride that wants to pursue the groom. The divine groom is the one who pursues and delivers his bride. The bride of Christ cannot deliver herself. She must be delivered by the redemptive actions of the groom. Every godly marriage, to some degree, should model this great salvific truth. The bride does not save herself. The groom comes to save her. And I realize when I'm saying that, that does not sound politically correct in our feministic culture. But if you miss this, you miss a great picture of redemption in marriage. A great picture. This is part of God's elective graces towards his people. The Jews of the Old Testament were very familiar with this. They saw themselves as a chosen people. Chosen people. Why? Because Yahweh had said to them, for you are holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6. They were a chosen people. Deuteronomy 14 and verse 2. For you are holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Even Yahweh likens himself to Israel as a husband married to a sinful wife of harlotry. Hosea, as the husband, is an illustration of the faithfulness of Yahweh to his unfaithful wife, Gomer. She is an illustration of Israel who needs to be saved. In the New Testament, we know that the husband uh, and the church is his, that Christ is the husband and the church is his bride. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 through 27. There, Paul pictures a divine wedding of the church and Christ. Earlier in chapter 1, of Ephesians, Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Because of his choice, now we become his bride. Because of his choice, we become his bride. So Boaz now pictures the elective grace of Jesus Christ as he delivers Ruth from her plight, especially her unworthiness as a Moabitess. Secondly, we see in verse 13, Yahweh opened her womb. God is always the one who opens and closes the womb. He is the one who determines who comes into this world and who does not come into this world. Previously, Ruth was unable to conceive while she was married to Malone. We mentioned that earlier. 
This added to her disgrace as a woman. She was not just a Moabitess, but she was a barren Moabitess. Her time in Moab, married to Malone, was, we think, about 10 years, as Ruth chapter 1, verse 4 says. Yet she was unable to conceive a child. Now, in the space of a few short weeks after returning to Bethlehem, she and Naomi are richly blessed, and she's married and then conceives. Nine months later, she gives birth to a son. God has done the same for Ruth as he had done for Rachel in Genesis 30 and verse 22, as well as Leah in Genesis 29, verse 31. And now he has done this for Ruth. He has opened their wombs. Psalms, and we're going to be getting into detailed exposition of Psalms soon. Psalm 127 and verse 3 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Yahweh has unexpectedly opened Ruth's womb. Again, the parable, the parallel here is unmistakable. This conception and birth from a barren Moabitess woman in Bethlehem foreshadows the miraculous birth of the Son of God to a virgin in Bethlehem over a thousand years later. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. So the similarities between Boaz and Ruth's special child and the birth of Jesus Christ are not coincidental. They are a foretaste of the eternal story of redemption in Jesus Christ. Even the Old Testament saints of Ruth's day understood that something unusual and special was happening with these events. That's why they make the wishes that they do for them. Something unique is going on here. And they understood this, even though they didn't know what. And then the wedding joy now is rewarded in verses 14 and 15. Look at verse 14. Where it says, then the women, this is the women of Bethlehem, said to Naomi, blessed is Yahweh who has not left you without a kinsman redeemer today and may his name be proclaimed in Israel. Now the desperate, dark, and depressing tone of the early chapters of Ruth are gone. As one commentator has written, deep sorrow turned to radiant joy. Emptiness gave way to fullness. The same women of Bethlehem that had witnessed Naomi's sorrow and bitterness back in chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, are now sharing her exuberant joy. So the women of Bethlehem attribute these wonderful events foremost to the smiling providence of Yahweh. Blessed is Yahweh, verse 14 says. The women understood a very profound and unmistakable theological truth. Boaz was a key player in this turn of events, but he was not the necessary sufficient cause of them. Boaz was simply an actor in the story. Yahweh was the author of the story. Yahweh is what made these things work out. Yahweh was orchestrating this story as it unfolded, and he intended it to work for his glory and Naomi's good. This is a truth that her great, great, great grandson, Solomon, would realize at the end of his life when in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 14, he writes, 
in the day of prosperity, be happy, but in, in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. So you must always remember in your life, as we've made reference to before in our series, behind a frowning providence, Yahweh hides a smiling face. Where does that come from? I've referred to that two or three times in our series already. That actually comes from a hymn written by William Cowper, entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And listen to what he writes in this hymn. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds, ye so much dread, are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Notice here in verse 14, how these women say the same thing that the witnesses, that is the elders and the people of Israel said earlier concerning Boaz. They confirm their wish for Boaz's name to become famous in Israel. They too notice something special in Boaz. He was a unique man. The women then of Bethlehem acknowledge the love of Ruth for Naomi as a faithful daughter-in-law in verse 15. Look at verse 15. They go on and say, may he also be to you a restorer of your soul and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So these same women of Bethlehem go on to project into the future as Boaz cares for Naomi and Ruth and, and especially Naomi in her old age because they're talking to Naomi. Previously, Naomi had no one left to care for her after her death of her husband and her sons. Ruth stepped in and cared for her in a temporary way, in a very intermediate way, but she was very limited in what she could do. But Boaz now comes along, will be a permanent answer to help her and a supply for her in her old age. Ruth now is said to be worth more than seven sons. Naomi had lost two sons. Ruth's love for her shines so brilliantly in her care for her mother-in-law. Seven is the, is the Hebrew number for perfection. Seven sons would make a perfect family, but Ruth was worth more than that. She was a supreme blessing from Yahweh. And all of that was because of the elective sovereign purposes of God orchestrating every detail that happened in these events. Let me close with this. 
Charles Spurgeon tells a time when he was preaching to a group of Methodist brethren. In his own words, he gives us an account of what transpired. You've got to understand, Methodists do not like the idea of election. All right? Preaching a few months ago in the midst of a large congregation of Methodists, the brethren were all alive, giving all kinds of answers to my sermon, nodding their heads and crying, Amen! Hallelujah! Glory to God! My spirit was stirred and preached away with an unusual force and vigor. And the more I preached, the more they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Glory to God! If that were to happen in joint heirs, I would go on for another hour. (laughs) Okay, let's go back. (laughs) At last, as a part of the text, Spurgeon goes on to say, it led me to what is styled as high doctrine. So I said, this brings us to the doctrine of election. There was a deep drawing of breath. (gasps) Now, my friends, you believe it. They seem to say, no, we don't. But you do. And I will make you sing hallelujah over it. I will so preach it to you that you will acknowledge it and believe it. So I put it thus. Is there no difference between you and any other man? Yes, yes, to the glory of God. Is a difference between what you were and what you are now? Is there that difference? Oh, yes, yes. There is sitting by your side a man who has been to the same chapel as you have, heard the same gospel. He is unconverted and you are converted. Who has made the difference, yourself or God? The Lord, they said. The Lord, glory. Hallelujah was the Lord. Yes, I cried. And that is the doctrine of election. That is all I contend for. That if there is a difference, the Lord made the difference. Now, if there is a difference in your life, it is the Lord who has made that difference. Naomi and Ruth's life was turned around both for the sake of Yahweh's care for them, but also for his elective grace down through the ages. An eternal plan was at work and came true. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Lord, we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful story. We thank you for this wonderful book where we learn so much from it. And I pray that we'll be encouraged to trust you when it seems like your providence is frowning upon us. And yet behind it, you hide your own smiling face. Eventually, Naomi, Ruth, were blessed because of what you did in your elective graces in their life. Father, may we understand that and be faithful to serve you joyfully, even though circumstances of our life may be difficult. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.